Welcome to Herbal Hour. Today we have with us best-selling author Alexander Hine to speak about healing thyself. Our first topic is physician suicide and why the rates are so high. Thank you for listening. I hope you guys enjoy. So I was looking at some incredibly interesting research, pretty surprising, and it actually has to do with the topic of suicide. Apparently, on average, about 300 to 400 physicians commit suicide in the United States on a yearly basis. Wow. Just in the United States. That's like an entire medical school of students, uh, physicians that die. In fact, it's the profession most likely to commit suicide. Not dentists? Uh, <laughs> well, maybe well, they're both kind of physicians on right. some level. So they're, they're in there. Maybe they're like the highest, right. um, the highest suicide rate of physicians. All right. Fair enough. Right. So that's pretty incredible information. Yeah. Why do you think that is? What, what do you think is leading this suicide epidemic amongst physicians? I think it's, it's also like a yin yang thing where it's one part internal, one part external, where I think the inner part is just that. Like, no one who's really fulfilled or really happy and content and has a meaningful life kills himself, obviously. So I think whatever leads to those internal factors, whether it is that, like, you look at the profession of physician, and in our modern world, because this wasn't like this in ancient times, in the modern world, that's a very prestigious title that makes a lot of money. And prestige and money attract a lot of people, including people not interested in a field. So I think part of it is, like, a lot of physicians have family lineages of medicine, and a lot of people go into it who don't actually really like medicine. I think that's one piece of it. And I think the other piece is just the external piece, which is just that you're working crushing hours. You have however many few minutes with a the patient. There's a ton of pressure. And frankly, people can just be like really mean. I mean, if you look at the malpractice insurance for a physician, what is it like? Almost six figures a mm. year or more? Especially for surgeons. Especially surgeons. Yeah, like you look at that. That's like, I'm paying this much to not be afraid right? And like such a litigious society where you're afraid of, you make an honest mistake and someone like sues you for all you have. That's pretty scary, you know? I mean, those are my best guesses, but I think a lot of it is just that deep kind of, a lot of it is just, I think the compassion fatigue too, where you're helping mm. people and you even just see like the same person come in, like the diabetic, right? Like a case study, the diabetic, they come in, you see the blood sugar numbers, you see the A1C, and then eventually what happens is let's, let's make it extreme. They need an amputation like their foot or below the knee, but then nothing changes. They don't change the diet. They don't change anything despite that really serious consequence. And it almost leads you to feel like, like why bother? Like a lot of these people are going to do the same thing no matter what I say. And mm. so it's kind of like you're the Pez dispenser. You don't like what you're doing or even maybe what you're giving. Maybe, you know, it doesn't even really work in the long term, but that's kind of all you have. And you are not even allowed to because of the AMA and the system set up for you in medicine. You can't even uh, do anything different from that prescribed advice or else that's malpractice. Right. And so if you're practicing alongside uh, regulations of insurance companies right. and what they'll reimburse, it forces a certain kind of uh, practice like the, you know, physician sees, you know, 10 patients an hour or right. something ridiculous that really no person can possibly handle. And in in such a stressful position where what you decide has such a big impact on right. somebody's life. Right. And then on top of that, there's uh, something you were alluding to the lack of uh, fulfillment in the profession that um, some physicians might feel like they're facing this, this giant uh, conventional medical system insurance companies right. that they can't overcome. And they feel like their actions don't actually make that much of a difference in right. somebody's life. And I mean, how much of a difference can you make in somebody's life if you only see them for like two minutes yeah, and right. you don't even know their first name? Right. And I think like, I think all physicians, just like all humans want meaning and purpose in their work and their life. And so it's almost like a system that they're forced to work in that makes them have this meaningless surface meeting with every patient mm. where it's just like, all right, I'm a Pez dispenser, even though I don't really want that. And they don't have like an hour where they can just talk about life, see what's really going on. They can actually have the opportunity to do anything deeper. So I think they're almost barred from having meaning unless they view the act of like, let me just do this. And that's like, this is supposed to be like, this is just my role that I play. So I think, I, I think a big piece is just that there's like the external system set up preventing them from doing what they want from any of them. 
And there's also just the internal, you know, maybe a lot of them didn't go into the right profession because it was something that really intrigued them, but it was just something that seemed like maybe a good decision or a family decision. And that's, that's partially one of the very heart crushing things is a lot of uh, physicians, MDs, DOs, they went into medicine with a very pure idea. They yeah. really wanted to help people. Right. Uh, but, you know, then they practice for a couple of years and they become completely jaded. In fact, I hear very often from a lot of uh, family practice doctors, um, a lot of MDs, that when a student comes to them, you know, all excited and bushy-tailed about medicine and I want to help people and can you tell me how you heal and all this? And these doctors are saying, don't do it. Yeah. Don't go into this field. It's not what you think it right. is. More than 50%, the last survey I saw, more than 50% would not recommend like their own kid to go into medicine. Wow. <laughs> that's saying something, man. That's like if, yeah, exactly. That's like the divorce rate, right? So it's like if what we're all doing collectively results in a 50% divorce rate, obviously the decisions, <laughs> this just making process to get married is not correct. Something's, something's going something's wrong, like going, 100% chance right, of that. Right. Yeah. And then you look at the same with medicine where like almost no one can recommend it. And yet there are still, the medical schools are getting more and more filled up. The requirements are getting more and more stringent. It's like, what? It's like the, almost like the marketing team for medicine is like really, really strong, but the product fulfillment is really, really awful. So it's like you have all this marketing around the iPhone and it's just a shit product. Mm -hmm. It's like that kind of weird, weird complex with medicine. Not to get off too off topic, but we were just complaining about how the new Apple products have all these ridiculous <laughs> dongles that you have to buy. Exhibit A. Like I have this thing connected to my computer. It looks like it's giving birth to like a little machine baby. Yeah. Um, and you basically can't use any connections to the, you know, laptop without that. Right. Um, completely off topic, but it's an example of ridiculous moves by companies. Yeah. Um, so what do you think actually leads physicians to taking their own life? So there's obviously a difference between someone who is not fulfilled in their work and right. is depressed, um, feels like they don't have meaning in life and somebody who actually takes their life because of that. Right. I guess that's like the big question. Why do some people go through depression or difficulties and they decide to commit suicide versus people that just go into depression or people that are resilient that are like, I'm going to use this as the impetus to actually do something. I guess ultimately we don't know, but I think with a lot of suicide, there's a feeling that whatever hole I'm in, I can't get out of. Like it's just the hole's too deep. I can't get out of it. And that sense of hopelessness. And I think with physicians, there's, I don't know if we have stats on the average age of suicide, but it'd be interesting to see because I think there's some aspect of, well, I have prestige. I probably also have money. Maybe they have student loans still a lot. Or maybe they don't, but there's maybe a feeling of, well, what else am I going to do? Right. Or I'm a doctor. Like I'm like one of the most respected people in society. Like what would it be like to kind of crawl back my tail between my legs and become like a nursery school teacher that like fulfills me, but it's like an embarrassing job mm. with no respect. So you think there's some element of ego always uh, placed in there? I think all the people, I mean this with all due respect, I think everyone I know that's committed suicide, there's always an element of ego. There's always, I mean, cause shame is a big part of suicide, right? Right. Like the, even if it's the shame or the discomfort with confronting people and being mm -hmm. like, no, I'm actually not number one. I'm not doing well. I'm actually doing awful. And number two, mm. like I, I, these choices I have to make in my life are so insurmountable and they're often ego-based reasons. That mm. just gave me a, a little bit of an insight. Where do the healers go to get healed? Who does a doctor talk to? They're supposed to know right. why they're ill uh, mentally or otherwise. Right. In fact, it's, it's pretty common for uh, psychiatrists, psychologists to actually become interested in that field of medicine right. because they deal with their own mental issues. And we know that um, at our own school, a lot of people come in um, with all sorts of pre-existing medical conditions. They have chronic illnesses, this and that. Yeah. And a lot of ways that inspires them to follow medicine. Right. It's kind of that, that archetypal myth of Chiron, uh, the wounded healer, it's called. It's an incredibly interesting story. But it's basically, it's about the healer that themselves becomes uh, basically lethally poisoned by uh, an arrow in the story and can't cure themselves. Mm. And they have to always suffer with it. And it's kind of like the idea that the healers suffer for other people. Right. Isn't part of the Chiron story also that 
I forget whoever granted Chiron his powers, but that either his powers could be revoked, so he would lose his powers, but then he would die. Oh, he was given but an he option. Maintained, yeah, but he can maintain his powers, but be wounded forever. So it's like this dual, mm. this dual like anima animus, yin and yang archetype. Mm. I just heard the story recently in China again from someone else, and that was her. Uh, that's fascinating. Her recounting of it, but that that's a big question. I think that's why a lot of the indigenous healers that were traditionally the physician slash spiritual advisor, they all had their own tools for, for like self physician heal thyself, right? Like that kind of thing mm. that you don't see a lot of in modern medicine. You don't, you actually don't really see a lot of even ethics like ethical training in modern medicine. And there's probably like one class in ethics in medical school, but like individual, like what are you really going to do to take good care of yourself? Right. I mean, uh, most recently they've been adding in, uh, to the MCATs, the medical um, admissions test before you go to medical school. Mm-hmm. Uh, a whole section on all the social studies, social sciences, that really? kind of stuff. Yeah, because even the culture at large is realizing that there's a lack of a humanistic element right. in uh, medical schools and they're trying to actually test for it now. But right. people are going to be studying out of a textbook how to be ethical. Right. It seems kind of ridiculous. Well, I think this is one of those things where it's just like in a company, <clears throat> medical school and any really professions that have high performers, top, top performers. If you reward performance, you don't reward integrity. Mm. So you don't reward ethical decision making. Mm. So it's the same in a company. If you say, I'm going to give you a bonus for getting this best, you sell this package to this client, you don't, re- you don't reward honesty. And so I think that's the problem also in medicine. If you're saying, we're the creme de la creme, we're only taking the top 1% of students, well, okay, you're going to get the straight A students, but what do they have going on the rest of their life? And I think that's also why medical schools now highly value extracurriculars because it's cool to be the straight A 4.2 whatever student, but the whole aspect of a person's life also influences their decision making and obviously the practice of medicine. Do you think that medicine uh, in general and specifically conventional medicine attracts a certain type of personality? I think we both probably would agree that there's a high amount of Type A, right? Uh, the classic you know, type, competitive a. types, probably bred that way by their parents from from a young age, often, and I think they're just, it, yeah. I mean, it's like because medical school is one of the most competitive milestones a person can reach for, and every year it gets more complicated and more difficult to get in, and mm-hmm. even the degree of information, like you meet physicians from that are like in their seventies or fifties now. And they're like, I would never want to go to medical school again. It's so much more information than even when I was there. Mm-hmm. So that's only, and increased population is only in, going to increase the demand. Mm. I like the point you um, brought up about physician heal thyself uh, or how self-healing applies to being able to heal other people. Yeah. Um, and thinking about the issue, we were speaking about this briefly before. I think a big portion of this uh, suicide uh, in physicians is due to a lack of meaning in life. Mm. And it's due to an also an inability to process and deal with the large amounts of human suffering that they deal with on a, on a daily basis. Yeah. So imagine, you know, you're a psychiatrist or something. And I wonder actually if psychiatrists are uh, higher on that list of uh, likelihood of suicide. But imagine all day long you're just hearing the worst stories about people, about uh, murders and terrible thoughts and, you know, crippling anxiety and depression and people losing their minds, hallucinating, yeah. going crazy. And you're just hearing that all day, every day. Right. And your, your mind is just go, 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 go all day long. And then you go home and you sit down and you start watching TV. Right. You don't decompress. Uh, you don't necessarily have... Um, any kind of practice to help you kind of really process and integrate that um, all that baggage so that it doesn't you know weigh you down. I yeah. think that's a big aspect of it. It's huge. And the the lack of meaning in the profession because many go in with these big high ideals of uh, healing people, and then they actually get into the clinic and you know it's not what they thought it was at all. They're just. Right you know, glorified Pez dispensers, as yeah. you said. Yeah, I think a big thing too is that because uh, a lot of what we deal with in the medical profession is really, it's psycho-emotional stuff, the, the burden, right? We're not physically exercising all day. And I think the big thing is 
one of the greatest failures of medicine has been the psycho-emotional. Mm. And so I think you even look at psychiatry. It's like, one, it's just like, it's almost a joke, psychiatry. Whereas like you look at indigenous cultures, there's an article circulating on um, maybe CNN and it was talking about, I believe it was in Rwanda, this Rwandan shaman talking about a psychiatrist or a psychologist where they would come to the village and they would take the people that had experienced trauma and like, you know, bring them into the room and talk about their trauma. And they're like, we had to basically kick these people out of our village because in our village, when you're depressed, you get sun, you dance, you smile, you're around like family and people. And I had this picture of like people dancing with big smiles on their face. And he's like, and yet in your culture, you take people, you isolate them in a dark room and you talk about your trauma. And I think the big thing is that a lot of indigenous cultures, the way they deal with trauma, and I would honestly say the most of the modern research that's effective shows that it has to be somatic in mm. some level. So that's why like you look at um what is it, Van der Kolk? Is that the author, The Body The Body Keeps Score, the oh, really yeah, big I know. book on trauma? Right. His whole thing was that talk therapy is really not effective and that it has to involve somatic therapies like like um, any therapy that allows a person experiencing trauma to regain feeling of their body. Like, where do you feel like you're waking up with night terrors? You have PTSD from Vietnam. Where in your body do you feel it? And people will often not know how their body feels. Mm. That just like the somatic memory, that connection has been completely disabled. And so they won't know how their physical body actually is. And they're like, touch your body where you feel that emotion. And they have to retrain that. Mm. So that's why I think you hear so much about like the, what is it, vasovagal theory, where like, I've given so many people massages or done acupuncture, specifically around the neck, really common, and they just start crying. Hmm. Or they start spontaneously laughing. So those emotions are stored like somatically, not in the hippocampus or anywhere else, but there's a strong, like a physical body link with emotions. Mm. And there's even really ancient physicians in Chinese medicine talked about that being released, that it can be stored there for life. Mm. Uh, Wilhelm Reich talks about that. He was the founder of the idea of orgone energy mm. and organite and all these things that kind of were offshoots. Uh, he wrote a few very interesting books um, on psychotherapy and psychiatry because he was a psychiatrist. But he kind of delved into the study of the bioelectric fields of the human body. And in his research, he found that many people with uh, traumas uh, childhood abuse, emotional abuse, things like that early in their childhood, mm -hmm. they somehow stored um, almost these memories as like a kind of uh, contraction of their musculature, mm. like some kind of like the medical term would be hypertonicity, right. meaning um, like an overtight muscle. It's overactivated. But something about that habitual tensing holds that pattern in some sense, which is very fascinating because what you were saying about people being worked on in their necks and they have all these reactions. Well, where do most people hold stress? Yeah. In their necks, right? You know, right. somebody a tight a tight neck, the classic someone with a lot of anxiety, they have a very stiff neck, yep. their shoulders are very raised, they're breathing very shallowly. Totally. If there's no uh physical correlation with those symptoms, then why are there physical symptoms? Right. There's some kind of interfacing going on. And it, it might really have part to do with uh, our view of the body not being correct in, yeah. in terms of thinking that mind and body are somehow uh, separate things that you can even speak of in a separate sense. Right. Maybe they're one continuous uh, aspect, one continuous being. So it's not even that they affect each other, but they are each other. Yeah. The body is an expression of the mind right. and the mind is an expression of the body. There's a book titled, I think it's that your body is your subconscious mind. Mm. You heard of that? <clears throat> the book literally titled it. I thought it was brilliant when I heard of it and that you want to know how you're feeling. If you can't access your subconscious, look at how your body's acting. That's so it's so like true. when you're dating someone, you go out on a date and you like, they may meet all the criteria on your list, but you feel weird. You feel like something. Something not feels right. not right. The chemistry, right. right? They say they call they it. They say chemistry. the chemistry. Whatever it is, I don't know. But sometimes they meet all those criteria, but you just feel weird. Something mm. feels weird in your body. That's your subconscious reading them, the nonverbal cues, or maybe something non-material altogether. Right. Well, they say that what eighty or ninety percent of communication is nonverbal. Yeah, and even our attraction to mates. I was researching a. Uh, Earlier today, I watched this video by an FBI researcher, I think his name is Navarro, 
who was a specialist in reading body language, speci- uh, specifically, uh, I guess, discovering or revealing spies. Oh. And he talked about this fascinating story. That of, sounds like that could be an amazing movie. Oh, yeah. So this guy, he was uh, being interviewed and he gave one kind of case study and he said that, you know, there was this one Russian spy in the U.S. We got tabbed. We were, or we were tipped off. And he said, we weren't quite sure who he was, but we had a video of him coming out of a flower shop. And rather than holding, we weren't sure if it was him, but rather than holding his flowers up, he held them down almost like a dagger. But he said, that's really common in Eastern Europe. And that's how we instantly knew. So sure enough, we pulled him in for questioning. And he's like, how did you know? He's like, because I've spent time in Eastern Europe and that's how they hold their flowers. And the guy was busted. But the guy was also saying that even our attraction to mates is mostly nonverbal cues. Mm. So we're picking up things about the person. Maybe it's material, like they're just um, micro expressions that maybe they indicate self-esteem or confidence or intelligence. Maybe they're not. But I thought that was really, really interesting. Mm. So do you think that practices like Qigong, which is kind of uh, for people that don't know what Qigong is, uh, it's similar in some sense to Tai Chi. It's a a movement exercise uh, based on mindfulness of the body and different forms and postures. What role do you think these cultivation practices, as they call them, as they call them, play in becoming a great healer and healing yourself, first of all. Well, I mean, I think in terms of Qigong, the reason for that, there's probably a lot of reasons, but the reason I've been trained is that what it first of all does is it lets you understand what's going on in your body. So if you don't have that awareness already, it's difficult to understand what's going on in your patient's body. Because this idea of like Qi and all this stuff, it's kind of, in my understanding, it's just a concept to understand processes that are very subtle. Um, whether they're just hormones or whether it's something else, I don't know. But one of the things with Qigong is that, first of all, it gives you an awareness of what's going on in your body. So one of the things for me going on two years ago was that I had a lot of like, almost like reflux or indigestion easily. I'm sure it was just from working crazy hours and mm-hmm. not taking the proper time for meals. And anytime I would do Qigong, I would notice that. Like it would suddenly, all the sensation would come to my epigastrium and I would notice my stomach just like, feeling like, ugh, like, like nasty, like after you eat too big of a meal. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't notice it before Qigong. And then eventually, so I noticed the sensation. And then after like 20 minutes, I'd start literally burping and farting. So this is saying that first, it gives you the awareness of what's going on in your body. And then second, it'll try to move it and clear it on its own. So I think on one level, it gives you that awareness of just what is in your body and the more you become sensitive to that, the more you also become sensitive of like feeling what's going on in other people. Mm. Because I think if you can't, if we don't have the sensitivity to even know how we, we ourselves feel, we definitely are not sensitive enough to notice how other people feel. Right. So I think there's, I think there's a reason why our profession in specific, uh, attracts sensitive people. I think that's not a coincidence. Like almost all the men in our field are very like the sensitive male mm-hmm. you ne- you rarely see like a very insensitive like alpha archetype mm-hmm. um at least like externally right so it's like you like the people you meet are obviously more on the feeler side of the spectrum mm-hmm. and i think that's no chance and that our field's like what 80 percent female and attracts 80 percent female patients right that's all i think the indicator of that so do you think it's something of bringing awareness can almost dissolve these uh these holding patterns in the body that are leading to all these conditions i think it's a piece i think awareness is one piece but i think the other thing with qigong is the reason why breath work is involved including sometimes really strenuous breath work that would even be like contraindicated on your menses or in pregnancy uh is because that vigorous breath work really does move circulation so like my prime recommendation when for example, dealing with patients with anxiety or depression is to find some kind of physical movement because movement also moves emotions, mm. right? So it's like almost anyone has had the feeling of being stressed and like needing to run or work out or fight, but right. then after you feel good. So emotions are clearly not in your head, right? right. They're, They're in your circulating body. in your body. That would be a great uh, title for a book. Emotions are in your body. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like create, someone's gonna take it. Someone will. You better yeah. copyright, copyright that. Yeah, it's no, copyrighted. But it's, but it's like you know, the, your body is your subconscious mind. Same thing, right? Like emotions are actually in your body. Mm. So, I don't know how you'd explain that, you know, biochemically or biomedically, but in Chinese medicine, there's a clear explanation. Yeah, it's it. That's an interesting point that it 
can't really necessarily, at least as far as we understand, be explained in an anatomical or physiological way why it happens. Mm. But uh, I've had many experiences uh, with mindfulness meditations, breath meditations. Um, they call it uh, vipassana, which mm. is like insight meditation. And one of the big aspects of it is once you get yourself into like a very calm, focused state, you turn your attention to your internal feelings of your body, your emotions. Mm. And instead of the usual pattern, which is, you know, run away from it, suppress it, or the mind going off uh, doing its monkey mind thing, you just rest your attention on that feeling with no commentary. Just purely rest uh, if it's like a feeling in your stomach. Yep breathe in and out and feel that feeling without naming it without even saying stomach pain with because that's also labeling true um and i've i've had pretty remarkable experiences with it where i was having some kind of strong negative emotion mm-hmm. um and i sat down to kind of meditate on it and feel it and you actually start noticing that the emotion is actually somewhere in your body mm. like for me a lot of times it would be kind of in my like heart area, yeah. but not, you know, where the physiological heart is to the left, but like kind of in the center like of your chest area. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like your, uh, like sternum, I guess. Manubrium. Somewhere yeah, manubrium. Yeah. <laughs> Dropping some me- medical yeah. terminology for y'all. I hope you've been studying your anatomy yeah, books. Google that. Listeners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so I brought my attention to that and very strange things will happen. Uh, the emotion will morph. It'll feel mm. different. And eventually, um, the most profound of all, this is completely unexplainable uh, as far as I'm concerned in a scientific uh, biochemical way. Right. But that emotion becomes released. Mm. You rest that awareness for long enough. See, uh, see if you get a chance, you feel like some kind of big emotion come up. You feel like anxiety. You feel like fear. Something like anger. Something really like really visceral. tangible in your body. Yeah. yeah. Placing your attention on it, if you can manage your attention on it for like 10 minutes without making any commentary, amazing things happen. Mm. It, it changes in, into all sorts of different forms, sensations. You notice where it is in your body. Right. And the, uh, for me, there was this moment where the emotion didn't go away, but it was transformed. Mm. So suddenly from being in a kind of anxious or fearful state, uh, especially like in the heart region and feeling kind of that chest tightness it welled up into like this like joy and love so it didn't like get rid of the emotion it almost like transmuted it Mm. and i think that's really what alchemy is and that's uh, what the true alchemists were doing they when they say that they were trying to turn lead into gold most of them at least the most advanced ones i would say were speaking metaphorically they meant to turn the lead of the unrefined body and unrefined minds into the gold of spiritual wisdom because gold represents the spiritual element. Mm. Uh, so it's like you take these base emotions, these very hard, heavy, you know, poisonous emotions, right? Lead's pretty poisonous. Yeah. And you turn them into positive emotions through awareness. Mm. Uh, so I think that it's pretty remarkable and it would be a great area for more research to be in. So yeah. what is your self-cultivation practice look like? I mean, for me, one part of it is purely, again, for me, it's internal and external. So like for me, a lot of my own personal goal setting is on one piece of the paper, I have the goals that I want to work on that I have to grow to, to reach. But on the other side is the traits and the, like the character, the inner virtues that I've got to work on more. Um, and so that's actually a big self-cultivation routine for me because it's on one level, like the goal of being great at what you do takes years and years or decades. But behind that is also a different character you have to become. So for, you might have the idea of you want to be great at your work or you want to be great in your marriage or you want to be fit. But behind all those, that's a branch, right? The root, though, is I'm a more disciplined person. Mm. The root is I'm much more patient. The root is I don't lose my temper as much. So for me, that's like my own personal cultivation routine. But besides that, I do focus on... Like for me, Qigong, 20 to 30 minutes, has been really, really interesting. And partly it's because I don't really understand it. There's a lot of doctors, I mean, there's a lot of disagreement in my own field about mm-hmm. what it even does and the, and the value of it. 
probably most acupuncturists don't do anything related to that. And, but the ones that do are really adamant that if you don't do that, you'll never be great. So it's kind of hard. Like when the, there is an agreement and the people that are into it are so emphatic that this is how the way a real Chinese medicine doctor mm. would have trained. And you, for example, if you don't do Qigong, you'll never really acquire the high level of being able to take a pulse and really feel other qualities that you can't just physically feel that people say. So all these aspects of, um, of the practice I'm doing kind of proactively to just see if that's true or not. Um, so my personal routine is really involving that mostly. Mm. So I've heard before that Qigong and these other practices are a way of cultivating qi mm-hmm. or letting qi move through your body, um, which is translated sometimes as an energy or um, some kind of bioelectric thing. What do you think it is and how do you how do you think that actually can affect other people? Like, are the stories of these great sages really true that, you know, they meditated in the mountains for like 20 years? Did Qigong develop such supernatural powers that they can, you know, touch babies and they're healed turn instantly? Turn them into bacon. And turn them or, into or bacon. heal them. <laughs> Depends Ve- what the goal is. Vegan bacon. Vegan bacon, yeah. That's the real miracle. Turn That's real in. alchemy. Yeah. Tofu bacon. Tofurky, bro. Yeah, tofurky. Well, <laughs> the reality is I don't really know. Um, I've never witnessed, uh, like, a, I've never seen a true Qigong master, and I've never seen someone demo something that I couldn't explain yet. I believe that there are people out there like that. There's one guy that has done a lot of research studies. I think his name is Dr. Yen Shin, and they found that he could actually slow down the radioactive decay of certain isotopes. Mm-hmm. Um or that he could actually, in a Petri dish, kill cancer cells, but not regular cells. That's pretty amazing. I don't know if that's ever been reproduced, but I was just reading research of his. And, I mean, I've met people that practice Qigong. I met recently met um, a teacher in our lineage that taught a lot of the professors here. And I asked him personally in Chinese, like, I remember someone telling me a story about you where uh, he was in the communist revolution, so he was sent away to the countryside for I don't know how long. And he was sent, I think, near Tibet or was in Tibet. And uh, he was actually one of the people in charge of defrauding, like a lot of these, um, I don't know if defrauding is the right word, but basically disproving a lot of these Qigong masters. Debunking. Debunking. Right. He was actually sent by the government to debunk most of these Qigong masters. They paid him for that? They paid him for that. That's an interesting government that... Right? That's like well, uh, that, counter-propaganda or something. Well, this was during Mao, and his whole oh. thing was modernize and scient- make, make uh, China more scientific, keep it up with mm. the West. So they sent him, who was supposedly a Qigong master himself, to go debunk these other masters. And he said 99 out of 100 were fake. But he said, I asked him in Chinese to get the direct out of his mouth. He said, but I was in Tibet in a, I don't remember where he said, a monastery or a temple. And there were monks meditating. And one monk levitated one to two feet off the ground. Whoa. And I said, did you see like tons of them? He's like, no, only one. Why is Snapchat never present yeah, when right? that's happening? I know. Dude, modern era, we should be seeing tons of... The t- well, I mean, a lot of these people seclude themselves for a reason. All right. Assuming it's real. You and me need to make a vow. If we ever go on a trip to like search for sages or something, yeah. we're bringing our phones and we're going to get video evidence of oh, it. Oh, I mean, I already have a sage project on my channel of all my quests to go do them. I so know. I was watching some yeah, of them. Our it's next one, let's do it. Did you find one? Not that first trip, no. No, you didn't find but, the sage. But it was nice to talk to Dr. Wong to hear that. Because even though it's still secondhand, he, t- to me, he's a credible person and he's a skeptic. Because he said majority is BS. I've heard of pretty uh, incredible stories, especially from the Tibetan tradition. Right. Uh, there was this documentary where they basically went into the mountains of Tibet to find these great healers, uh, sages. These, um, these men were living alone in a hermitage, meditating every day for something for like eight hours a day for, I think it was like 20 years. Wow. Uh, and they were, this camera crew was interviewing this, uh, this monk. And they basically were asking him something similar along the lines of what we're talking about. Like, are these, you know, miraculous powers real? Are these, you know, are these stories true? And he was like, if I told you the full extent of it, you wouldn't believe me. So I'll just tell you that I remember when I was born. So yet he, he, cool. he claimed to have a recollection of when he was born in his early life. Wow. Um, not to mention uh, implications about past lives, future lives, right. that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, I want to believe it's true. But at the end of the day, I'm still, you know, I'm still 
I would want the proof rather than just like, you know, spouting some fairy tale that inspires people to just do something that may right. not have value, you know. There's a great uh, story out of the Buddhist tradition where there was this uh, magical worker, this kind of magician, and he practiced for, you know, 10 years or something to learn the ability to be able to levitate across water. And then he was kind of, you know, showboating, showing off to all the townspeople. Uh, Look, I can like cross the water without touching it. I could levitate across the water. And the Buddha kind of walks up to him and asks him, you know, it only costs like one silver coin to (laughs) cross by boat, right? What a useless skill. You you spend 10 years of your life learning how to do something physical like that. Uh, And what's it really worth? Right. That's, I feel like that's an important point. Is it, it would it would truly be amazing though in terms of opening our minds to right. what's possible because right. if uh, some monk actually did levitate and they couldn't explain it through any measurement yeah. and you saw it There's and you recorded it we don't understand something's going on that we really like we're wrong about a lot of things right. and how we view the universe then for and, sure and it's the banister 4 minute mile right no one ran it before him he suddenly broke the 4 minute mile which physicians thought you would die if you ran that fast <laughs> you'd die of a heart attack <laughs> Right. It was all the experts said it was impossible, which is the story as old as human history. Everyone thinks it's impossible until it's done. Right. Every entrepreneur knows that to be true. And then after that, high school kids broke the four minute mile. Wow. And so it's like if so, I am going to do these quests every year until I find something like that, because to me, it's for one, it motivates me. I can share another story. Mm -hmm. It motivates me to practice these things that you may not see fruit of right away. Because, like, I'm already take good care of my health, and I already go to the gym five days a week and eat well. So Qigong to me is, like, it takes discipline. I don't like to do it, actually. It feels good after, but I don't like to do it. I do it because my teachers just really are emphatic about it. But for me, it would really motivate me to realize there's a limit to my physical skill and that there are other skills I should develop if I really want to become one of the best in history at my craft. That's mm. not just studying the medical books and seeing patients. Mm. So if it if that gets you 90% of the way, but you have to do other practices for some kind of non-material awareness of how to treat a patient, then I want to know that for my patient. Mm. But there's a story, Dr. Wong, the same Dr. Wong that I met, um, he was a kid and he was put into a Taoist temple, maybe Taoist or Buddhist, and there was a famous teacher called uh, a Taoist named Li Jie, and Li Jia apparently was, had these, he was prophetic. And he said that, you know, these are hard times coming upon us. We may never see each other again. And he knew they would not see each other again. And so he basically gave him like a, a sign so that he wouldn't quit his practice, his Qigong. And what he did was he did like the whole like smoothing the ball thing, you know, like you see in Tai Chi. And did like a sword fingers move mm-hmm. and like sliced off a huge tree branch. Whoa. And Dr. Wong brought previous... Uh, trip participants to that tree where the tree branch was cut and they have a picture of it this is his biographies in our um, our school bookstore someone wrote their dissertation on his life that's, that's but he incredible. said he never saw that before or after and his teacher did that who was not showy to say that this is what you're capable of like don't quit your practice I really wish I could see something like that it Me would too. probably change a lot of things right. in the way I view things and imagine how the way you live you could probably never be interested in money again after you see that like this whole dimension that is out there for us if yeah if like some great practitioner did something with their mind to make branches fall down right first of all the question would be what else can you do what else is possible yep uh, because, you know, breaking down branches of a tree is not particularly useful. Right. You should have just made like filet mignon with like some fresh wine or something. Yeah, exactly. That would be a better skill. Or turning yeah. water into wine like right. Jesus, Jesus did that. With better. that tofurkey baby. Yeah, with the tofurkey baby. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it would open up a lot of uh, possibilities. Right. And we were uh, speaking on this previously in one of our philosophical chats. But how I feel like it would affect my life. Because yeah. the question is, what what difference does it make if these things are possible? Well, right. I know for sure if I saw it for myself and experienced this kind of miraculous ability, I'd probably be meditating for like three hours right. a day. exactly. That would be like priority one yep. and everything else could just chill. Right. Like I, I would know. easily be able to do that. Yeah, I don't like, know what I would do. I might move out into a cabin in the woods and just figure out like, what is this? Right. Because that's fascinating, first right. of all. And it could be very useful for helping people too. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, if, if people could just touch Jesus and be healed, 
then I wouldn't need acupuncture or herbs ever again. I wouldn't even need to speak. Mm. They would just come and then I would just like, you know, wash my feet in the basin and then be like, all right, kids, come on. Come. It's like a carnival, right? It's like touch my feet and then they move on. Have you ever seen, <laughs> seen those things where they have uh, people will find like Jesus's face and like wooden planks and stuff? <laughs> what? And they sell them? Yeah. They're like miraculous things. Oh. They'll like, you know, it'll be like kind of look like not, it doesn't really look like Jesus, but right. it'll be in like, I don't know, some stain on the wall. Right. Oh, yeah, 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 always. You know what I'm talking about? Like, this is the presence They're of like, Jesus. oh, the Holy Ghost was here. Yeah. The Holy Spirit was here. It's like, nah, your plumbing was probably messed up. Right. Like, <laughs> it's more yeah. likely. Yeah. But um, not not to discount the possibility right. of things like that, but usually they're BS stories. Right. Like Sasquatch. Yeah. The Bigfoot. Who's clearly an interdimensional being that hides only when he doesn't want to be seen. Actually, we're moving into 4D right now. So. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We're in 5D right now. <laughs> So what do you think makes uh, like a high level physician versus just an average one? And how can you tell that? So um, it's really common that in the natural health circles, natural medicine circles, it's difficult to really find a, a healer that can really help you out. That's sad, but true. Right. So how do you know that they're the real deal? Let's say, I mean, the low level answer is clinical skill. Mm. Like straight up, like if my, like my family always saw one natural medicine doctor since I was a kid, but I actually never saw any results because especially look, to be fair, it's difficult with a chronic illness. Like as a kid, I had asthma, I still have it. Um, and so it's hard to really assess a chronic intermittent illness, whether or not an intervention is working or not. But it wasn't until I saw certain practitioners of a certain caliber in the same field, honestly, that just were better, straight up better. So like at the end of the day, there's a saying in uh, the Nanjing, the classic of difficulties, one of our classical texts, that the low-level physician gets 7 out of 10 patients better. The mm. high-level gets 9 out of 10 better. Now, the problem is, in most modern people, not even 7 out of 10 get better. So we're like that beyond. That sounds like a high number. Yeah. 7 that's out of 10 like getting seven, better? And that back then, that's cured. Wow. That's a cure rate, right? So... Now, that's probably far, far, far less. The bar is very low, the right? The bar is so low. If you it's can disappointingly low in our field. Suppress the symptoms, that's that's an approach that uh, many conventional doctors take that right. they're happy with. Right, yeah. Because they, they don't just, know any better, yeah, probably. They don't see the patient for a year or two. And then I think, so I think on one level, the obvious level is clinical skill. I think the other one is I read from this Japanese uh, Chinese medicine physician that. Um, to them, the highest level of physician is the one that counsels their patient on how to change their life. Mm. So that, that was really pretty wise. And we both like psychology mm-hmm. and like kind of changing your life. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was cool because it's like, again, we can give the diabetic whatever, right? To fix their A1C, their blood sugar. But then we still need to counsel them on not eating, you know, 13 donuts with dinner. Right. Like that may be the biggest intervention that we ever do. And why are they eating those 13 donuts? And then donuts? deeper than that. Yeah. Like, oh, you're lonely. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about that. Why? Like, yeah. And then why are you lonely? It just, it's a, it's a rabbit hole that leads to a lot of amazing discoveries. Yeah. And that's much deeper stuff. So it's probably like five layers deeper. Right. The real why. Right. So I think that like, we're lucky that we don't have patience for six minutes so we can afford to go into those things. Yeah. In fact, we usually have patience for way too long. Yeah. Like some of my, uh, clinic, uh, shifts, it, you know, because we are students and we're kind of learning our bearings and kind of want to do everything. I kind of want to do like a whole body constitutional visit. I right. want to know, I uh, want to know how the person's diet is. I want to know about their poop. Right. Like I want to know want if they meditate, how their sleep is, uh, what's up with them, and I also want to deal with their health complaint like, yeah. that they're actually coming in for. Right. Because I believe those things that I just said are part of that complaint. So all in all, that takes a very long time. You know, an hour, two hours sometimes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in the current, um, model of insurance, that's, I mean, if you told a conventional doc in most cases that you were planning to see a patient for an hour and a half, two hours, they, they probably would be shocked. Yeah. They'd be like, how, how can you even do that? What do you even do for an hour and a half, two hours? Right. Yeah. Talk about life. Yeah. Talk about this kind of stuff. How's life? Talk about meaningful things. Yeah. Herbal hour bringing you meaningful stuff as usual. (laughs) With uh, their man, Alex Hine, for part two. Strikes back. Natural medicine strikes back. (laughs) 
Yeah. So uh, thanks. Thanks for being on the show, man. Yeah. I appreciate appreciate it. it. Always a good talk. We'll uh, be sure to speak more about other enlightened topics, sages and uh, tofurkey. Yeah. Why don't you leave us with one final question? What you got? One final question. What is the purpose of your life? Damn. It's obviously making tofurkey out of babies. (laughs) That's my ultimate sage skill. There's this, uh, this, this, uh, wisdom, uh, from the Tibetan medicine tradition where they actually recommend for you to meditate every day on why do you want to be a healer? Why mm-hmm. do you want to be a physician? And that might be part of the answer to the question we asked in the beginning about the physician suicide is right. there's not that like, why there's not that, why am I doing this? Right. Right. So the lowest hanging fruit that is very common response and um, many of you might be thinking it is that, oh, I want to help people. Right. Well, you can help people by being a mechanic so yeah. their car doesn't break down. You could help people by bagging their groceries so they don't have to take the effort. You can help them by being a lawyer to keep their uh, behind out of jail, that right. kind of stuff, right? So why do the thing that you're doing? Like, of course, the wanting to help people is uh, an important drive, but why specifically in that way? Yeah. I feel like that's a that's a question that is always fruitful to ask right? because it actually changes. Yeah. So it's, it's not even a static answer. It's not always going to be the same answer. Right. One day you might have a different answer. So I mean, I could give you a very idealistic answer, like I want to help people. But that actually wasn't the reason I got it. Right. Medicine. I remember you telling me that. I, like, since I was a kid, I just had a strong childhood calling. Like, I would read books on mysticism, on herbal medicine. Um, I always just had a deep passion for the field. Later, it was really trying, it was curing my own digestive problems through finding Chinese medicine. But deeper than that, even if I never had any, before I had health problems, I was into it. So sometimes it's just like that childhood vocation that you don't know where it comes from, but it's just the most intoxicating field that, you know, there's one personal development teacher named Earl Nightingale, and he says, there's two kinds of people in terms of goals, river people and goal people. Mm. Goal people set a goal and they work just blindingly hard to get to that goal, and then they need to set a new goal. And river people find this great river of interest to play in their whole life. And they're just, it's the physician that works 16 hours a day out of pure passion. And neither is better than the other. It's just different approaches to life. Mm. For me, like medicine, specifically our field of medicine, is just like the most interesting thing in the world. And I can't imagine anything better than like sitting down with someone and helping them figure out not only their, their life on all levels, but also that even a very granular complaint like constipation, like just getting from the most material base existence mm-hmm. to the most, you know, psychological or spiritual. That's just like the most fulfilling work in the world. It's, it's just natural. It's so fascinating to sit down one-on-one with someone and hear their story, the the depths of their heart and their mind that they might not even share with their spouse. Mm. Um, right. And seek uh, help from you. And then even more amazing is that with study and meditation and contemplation, you can actually help them. So it's incredibly fulfilling in a very deeply uh, human way that is a very unique profession in that way because every profession helps people. But um, in my view, healers help people in the deepest sense of just living a good life and living a healthy life and enjoying life i mean of course like it's important for your car not to break down but if you're depressed like does it really matter yeah you know it doesn't matter so much like but if your car's broken down and you're just really happy and you're a sage i guess i mean you should probably go get it checked out so you don't don't kill somebody on the road yeah but uh notwithstanding that yes uh you're probably going to be okay with it right yeah i know a number of natural doctors that specialize in treating cancer and one of the things they do with all their cancer patients is they try to find them, have them find what they're most passionate about as quickly as possible and just mm. do more of that every day. And my, one of my mentors, my first mentor, he said to me, I'm realizing after 20 years, the most important thing is I get my patients to do anything that brings them joy on a daily basis. Mm. Like the accumulation of my 20 years. Like if they right. can just do that, it changes the state of love. the spirit at such a high level yeah. that it's a cascade. Yeah, you do the things you love and you share them with other people. That's the that's the ultimate work. Yeah. And I think that uh, the more we find that in our lives, the more fulfilled we'll be in any walk of life. Every person has a different uh, calling, right? And Definitely. this happens to be ours. 
So there you have it. This is uh, episode number five, Heal Thyself. Thank you guys for listening. Love y'all. And as long as the Herbal Hour keeps sitting down guests, we're going to be speaking about authentic topics on holistic medicine. Personally, I felt that this was something very needed in the podcast sphere and to open genuine conversation on topics that people really care about that really matter in their lives and their health. Uh, This is a field of medicine, natural medicine, that is still in its infancy, I would say, especially in the United States, although it has a very long tradition and history. And my main goal with this podcast has always been to spread that knowledge and to inspire people. Um, Obviously, I really enjoy speaking to these guests and learning as much as I can. I kind of love nerding out on that kind of stuff. But with all that said, I just wanted to thank you guys again for listening. And if you made it through this whole podcast, you're a trooper. I thought this episode was particularly interesting as well. I have a big announcement to make. Me and a business partner have started a supplement company. We will be making our own tinctures from scratch, wildcrafted, with the goal of one day actually growing these herbs and harvesting them ourselves to make these tinctures. Uh, For now, we're reselling some products that we really stand behind, some products from Wise Woman Herbals, Integrative Therapeutics, and the main goal at this point is really to just find the best supplements, the highest quality things uh, to share with the community and to really take the guesswork out of buying supplements. So really, if it's uh, something for the heart, to get something like Hawthorne, a very well-known herb uh, for that condition, uh, really to focus in on what are really the key herbs that are helpful. Because there's so many supplements out there that have a thousand ingredients in them, and they're all in low dosages, and they probably don't do anything. And that's why supplements get a, a, a bad rap. So the company is called Kentaros Therapeutics. And we have a website that's going to be up soon. You guys can check out. It's called uh, ktherbs.com. That's spelled K-T and then herbs.com. Love you guys so much. Please support by picking up a tincture you like. Uh, It'll be the same price as you can find in stores or online. However, one of the main goals of the company is actually to take 10% of all our profits and reapply them in the natural medicine sphere to promote this medicine so that more people can get this healing. So this is really a a passion project and I'm funding it completely with personal funds. Um, But yeah, we got great stuff. We got some uh, tinctures coming in the mail. We got some great compound supplements. Thank you guys so much. Much love. Bye for now.